And if you were to receive a really good dinner invitation from someone that you really admired or looked up to or you know just thought was an amazing person, and you knew that that person had personally invited you to be their guest, how would you feel about that? And what if, what if Jesus were to invite you to dinner? What then? You know, interestingly enough, the idea that Jesus might do just that is not something that we have to speculate about. For when we turn to the scriptures, we find that he is portrayed as doing just exactly that, and actually on somewhat of a regular basis. It's not for no reason that when we gather together to celebrate communion, we often talk about it as the Lord's Supper, because it's one of those times when Jesus actually does invite us to dinner. But as you also know, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, when God invites people to a shared meal, he often finds some challenges with the guest list. It is, after all, a long-established observation that on Communion Sabbath, you can expect the attendance will be a little bit on the low side. In fact, oddly enough, considering how much we use food to invite people to come and participate in the various events that we do at the church, when it comes to uh, inviting people to meals, it seems that this is a problem that often plagues God. In Luke 14, for exa example, Jesus tells a parable of this great banquet. You know the story. It's just graciously prepared for all of the guests, a banquet to which all are actually invited to come. And yet, amazingly, calendars and schedules being what they are, people come up with all kinds of reasons for why they just couldn't quite be there this time. Financial matters to attend to, business work-related things, you know, that just need my attention right now. Family relational stuff. Good stuff, bad stuff. But for whatever the reason, it just makes showing up the banquet just a little bit more than we can handle right now. I don't know if you remember the song that they used to sing in Sabbath schools a number of years ago. I cannot come to the banquet, don't bother me now. I've got me a wife, I have bought me a cow. I've got fields and commitments I cannot refuse. Pray, hold me excused. I cannot come. Well, we're not going to take a lot of time to get into that particular parable this morning, but I do think it's worth noticing, at least in passing, that however you package it or express it, that God often runs into problems when it comes to inviting people to dinner, and for some reason there is a certain amount of resistance, sometimes rather active, and sometimes just passive. Still, it is the imagery of a meal that God seems to want to choose a lot when he describes the gracious invitation that he extends to us to come and to know and to follow him. And yet, in spite of the graciousness of that invitation, there is still something within us that resists it. What is that all about? Why is that? Well, Isaiah 55 describes the, uh, the uh, invitation with these words, and these are familiar ones that we often look at at communion time. 
Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. Which then is immediately followed by a question that, pre- that addresses the resistance. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight itself in the richest of fare. And so then, why are we drawn to invest our resources that way? Why do the reasons to resist the invitation seem so compelling to us at times? Why is listening to God so hard? Especially when what we've been invited to is so rich and so good and so amazing. Well, I'd like to suggest to you this morning that in what Isaiah says in these couple of verses, he is not just echoing the invitation. But he may also be giving us some clues as to what the resistance is all about. First, when he asks us what we are invested in, why do you spend your money on that which is not bread, and your labor on that which does not satisfy? And then when he touches on the issue of our willingness to listen carefully to what God is saying. Listen, listen to me, he says and eat what is good, and your soul will delight itself in the riches of fair. Both of those are worth thinking about because I suspect that when we realize that Jesus inviting us to dinner might involve what we are being invested in being considered, and our willingness to listen being challenged, it may become less surprising to us that it stirs a certain amount of resistance in us. In fact, I can't help but wonder if those first disciples had had any idea of just how much what they were invested in and how carefully they were able to listen was going to be challenged that evening when they gathered together with Jesus for that last supper. I wonder if they would not have resisted coming themselves. Because, as you know, there was plenty of resistance already in evidence in the room that night as they gathered for the meal. Luke reminds us that one of the things the disciples were heavily invested in that evening was making sure that uh, they had a place of significance and recognition in the kingdom, preferably one that was a little bit higher than the person sitting next to them, and that maybe they were not quite so invested in how they treated each other in the process as long as they got their agenda accomplished. Nothing personal, you know, it's just business. And then as John 13 goes on to describe as John portrays for us what took place around the table that evening. We find Jesus and the disciples, disciples sitting there with dirty feet, carefully protecting what they were invested in, as Jesus quietly gets up from the table and takes the role of the kind of person who, in their minds at least, would clearly have no investment to protect. And with basin and towel in hand, begins to wash the feet of the disciples in a way that reflected to them what real leadership in the kingdom actually looked like. And Jesus does this not because he's play-acting, 
and not because he's just trying to be very clever about how he makes his point, but because that is the way that God really is. Well, of course, when he gets to Peter, by now, who is struggling with what's going on at the dinner? We find a Peter who has been completely thrown off balance by what he's watching. He's watched the collision of two very different kinds of perceptions of what kingdoms are all about and what leadership is all about. And in the midst of that, this conversation ensues. I'm reading from verse 6 in chapter 13. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? To which Jesus replies, You do not understand what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you will never wash my feet. To which Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. This must have been an utterly bewildering conversation for Peter to have with Jesus. Can you imagine? First, Peter has rejected the whole idea of Jesus serving in this way because this is not what position and leadership looks like. Everybody knows that. This felt wrong. Peter couldn't accept that this is the way it actually was. And in the midst of it all, we hear Jesus acknowledging that he knows that Peter doesn't get it. But he still continues to nudge Peter in the direction he needs to go. Even when it gets to the point that Peter flatly refuses to embrace the model. You shall never wash my feet, he says to Jesus. Jesus gently reminds him that this is the only Jesus there is to serve. You can't package the kingdom any other way. Unless I wash you, Jesus says, you have no part with me. There are no alternative versions of the kingdom or what the kingdom is like or what leadership looks like to choose from. This is the way it really is. The picture of God that Jesus is portraying for him by authentically being who he really is, is the way it is. There isn't another option. And so now Peter, bewildered and probably more than a little anxious by the way the conversation is going, feeling off balance, he reactively swings now to the other extreme and responds in verse 9 with these words. Okay then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet then, but my hands and my head as well. You can just imagine the swings that are going on inside of Peter as this is happening. In the span of just a few minutes, Peter has gone from trying to maneuver to the highest spot in the kingdom to being afraid now that maybe he's not even going to qualify. Maybe he doesn't even have a place anymore. Which is actually a pretty good description of what the reactive, anxiety-driven life looks like, at least when we allow ourselves to get caught in that current. As we bounce back and forth between kind of the subtle and not-so-subtle ways that we attempt to promote ourselves so that we can look good to God and others and certainly at least better than the people around us, and then the anxious fear that somehow maybe it'll turn out that we're not good enough after all, and we're going to wind up disqualified. And some of us know all too well what that ride is like, and have ridden the roller coaster up and down, 
in lots of different ways in our lives. But Jesus responds to Peter and to us by reminding us that we don't have to live like that. We don't have to live like that. And instead, he invites him and us to consider a different set of rhythms to live with. Rhythms that respond not to anxiety, but to grace. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 10. Jesus answered, A person who's had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean. And you are clean. Peter, Jesus says, relax. Take a breath. Let go of the reactiveness and the anxiety that is driving you. You are clean. It's as if Jesus were saying, Peter, it's your anxiety and your tendency to make this all about you and all about what you're afraid of and what scares you that makes it so hard for you to listen and to hear and to see what it is that I so much want to show you. Let it go. Let it go. It's not working for you, and it's making my job a lot harder. Just let it go. Well, but wait a minute. I mean, how could Jesus really be saying that to Peter at this point? I mean, really? Knowing full well that within just a couple of hours, Peter is going to deny that he even knows who Jesus is, right? Is Jesus really saying that? But the truth of the matter is that Jesus is saying that and can say that. Apparently because when Jesus says we are clean, it does not mean that we are not still flawed. In fact, as we read on in chapter 13, we find John telling us that Jesus did, in fact, try to point this out to Peter long before it happened. But because Peter was still being driven more by anxiety than by grace, even at that point, he was just not able to hear what Jesus was trying to show him. See, anxiety, even sincere religious anxiety, often shapes us in ways that can make it really hard for us to be honest enough with ourselves to have any kind of self-insight at all and to be open to what it is that God would like to say to us, especially about where our growing edges are. Which is why, not unlike Peter, we sometimes find ourselves walking into situations blind and hurting ourselves and sometimes people around us. Well, fortunately, Jesus already knows this about us. He was not surprised by what Peter did that evening. And as Peter discovered the hard way, when we do find ourselves there, we also find Jesus is still there, basin and towel in hand, ready to help pick up the pieces and help us find a way to move on. And there's a lot of good news in that this morning. But talk about a challenging dinner to be invited to. Can you imagine that conversation? All of this is already going on and we haven't even gotten to the meal yet. But then, as the food is served, we quickly discover that Jesus is apparently not content with simply upending all the generally accepted norms about kingdoms and what real leadership inside those kingdoms should look like. 
But he goes on to do some rather disconcerting things with the Passover celebration itself. He's just not going to leave it alone. And so, while some people might debate about whether this meal was actually the Passover supper or whether it was the meal the night before the Passover supper, you know, we're not going to worry about the calendar issues. What we do see in what Jesus is doing that night is that it was Passover imagery that he was heavily drawing from as he met with them and talked with them and shared with them. And that is really important to notice because Passover and the imagery surrounding it, which is very much a part of that meal that evening, was deeply significant for the people that gathered there. You see, Passover was a time when their story as God's people was remembered and it was told and it was retold and it was celebrated and it was all through the events of the evening. It was about deliverance from slavery in Egypt. It was about God intervening in powerful ways to save his people. It was about the blood of the lamb being placed on a doorpost. It was about celebrating their identity, who they were, what it was that made them the people that they were, and where God was in the midst of all of that. And while we don't know all the details of exactly what was said at the time of Jesus at that meal, what we do know is that this was a very special meal, and there were certain prayers that would have been prayed, and there were certain traditional things that would have been said, and for each part of the meal would have had a very specific kind of message to convey as they celebrated it together, as they remembered that amazing story about who they were and how God had delivered them. And so you can imagine, with all of that in mind, that when in the midst of this meal, which was so rich in symbolism and tradition, especially among those who would have taken this seriously, that it certainly would have gotten their attention when Jesus decided that he was going to go off script. He began to suggest that there was maybe more significance to what they were doing than what they were used to celebrating. And that somehow the symbols that they had looked to for this expression of their identity meant more than what they realized. He does it not in a way that denied or detracted at all from the richness of the story of God leading them out of Egypt, freed slaves and ready to move on to their own land. But he does it in a way that invited them to see how that story that had been shaping them was just a foreshadow of a much bigger story that God was now doing on a much deeper level and that, in fact, they were in the middle of. And so there, in the midst of all of the symbols and stories that they knew so well, as Jesus spoke, they began to sense that the ground was starting to shift under their feet. And once again, they must have felt what Peter was feeling earlier, that sense of being just a little bit off balance. This meal was not going the way it normally did. Notice what it is that Mark records here, or how Mark records it, as he gives us an account of Jesus going off script at that traditional meal. Mark chapter 14, 22. says, While they were eating, while they're right here in the middle of this special traditional meal, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it. This is my body. Well, at that point, you can be sure that Jesus immediately had everyone's attention. 
not just because of what he was saying about eating his body, which would have been disturbing enough, probably, if it was just dinner conversation, but because he was breaking with what would have been well-established Passover tradition, a tradition that was all about reminding them who they were and how they knew who they were, and now he was saying something else instead. He was saying somehow this had something to do with him. Listen as he continues in verse 23. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, he said to them. I tell you the truth, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine again until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Jesus took this meal and the storyline that they were so familiar with and from which they had drawn their identity, and he reconfigured it before their eyes in a way that was no longer just about them, the Jewish people and their deliverance from Egypt, that thing that made them different from all the other nations around them. And instead, he rooted their identity in a much bigger story and a much greater deliverance that was to be for all people and from which a different kind of kingdom was going to arise, one that was shaped by grace and which would be celebrated and sustained by a new meal. See, for generations they have been consuming the meaning of the celebration of Passover and letting that shape their sense of who they were and how they were supposed to be in the world. And it had become a part of them, and they a part of it. But this time, when Jesus invited them to dinner, he invited them into something much more than that. This was a kind of kingdom that was founded on a newer story, with more clearly articulated ways of living and being, one that was all about grace, one that was now centered in Jesus and what he had done. It was about a community sharing a meal whose story now was Jesus' story, and where the symbols were all about him. The bread, his body, broken for them, and the cup, his life, poured out for them. The symbols that powerfully express just who he is were also the symbols that were to powerfully define just who we are to be as we live in response to that in the world that we live. But we also need to notice that what Jesus offers us when he invites us to dinner in this new setting are not just new symbols and a new observance, as meaningful as those things are, as if those symbols were ends in themselves, but rather what he is offering to us in this meal is himself. He picked up the bread and said, here, this is my body, broken for you. And the cup, my blood, poured out for you. He said, become a part of me and what I'm all about. And let me become a part of you and shape what you are all about. You see, it's an invitation to let go of consuming and being consumed by all of the values and rhythms of the kingdoms that surround us. And instead, take the bread and the cup and be shaped and nourished by a different way of life. A different kind of kingdom. It is all about him 
and abiding in him, as he would go on to talk about right after the dinner was over that night, and then discovering what it means to live out of the overflow of that. That is what it's about when Jesus invites us to dinner. That is what he is inviting us to do. And even though responding may be quite challenging for us at times, and we may even find parts of us that resist, and it may even make us feel a little off balance because this is not the way the rest of the world works and not the way they tend to define things. Jesus still invites us to come. And as he invites us to focus more on him and let some of those other things go that trouble us so much, maybe feeling a little off balance is not such a bad thing. It opens us to the possibility that we might actually hear this time what it is he's trying to say. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Why do you spend your money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and your soul will delight itself in the richest affair. And so this morning is in response to that invitation that I'd like to invite you to come and to join together as we take part in the Lord's Supper.
The oldest recorded account we have of the supper being celebrated together comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there's a sense of solidarity with the Christian community for 2,000 years now almost as we read the same words that were received and shared at that time. And the words are these. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so I would like to invite you to do just that, to take the bread and the cup and to celebrate together as you remember Jesus. Thank you.